Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host and Fine Woodworking Editor, Tom McKenna, and with me this episode are Executive Art Director, Mike Pekovich. Good morning. Special Projects Editor, Matt Kenny. Hey, folks. And our web producer, Ben Strano. Hi, Ben. Hello, Ben. And as always, uh, Jeff Rose is helping us behind the camera. Uh, before we get started with the questions and the content, I have to take care of some business. This podcast is sponsored by Typond. Even if you're not a professional woodworker, you want to use the glue the pros use. And three out of four pro woodworkers trust Typond as their choice for building wood furniture or cabinets to making picture frames or birdhouses or just general repairs around the house. Typond has the widest choice of glues to help with whatever project you want to tackle. Typond, the right glue for your next project. Learn more at typebond.com or see them on Facebook. All right, now let's roll on and uh, start uh, yammering. <laughs> first, uh, <laughs> and um, go. Who's up first? <laughs> um, first thing uh, we we just uh, and uh, we just received notice. Well, not notice. That's kind of a, a really highfalutin way to say it. But the we're all latest, fired? <laughs> the, the, the latest episode <laughs> of the Highland Woodworker TV show is uh, live and and rolling along. And uh, awesome. Matt was was in it, and Garrett Hack was interviewed. I'm in this one. Yeah. I'll have to watch it. Yeah, tune on. Speaking of Matt, Garrett Hack was great. <laughs> <laughs> you were wonderful, too. No, I, I like Garrett on there because Garrett is Garrett, yeah. whether you're just hanging out or he's in front of an audience or in front of a camera. He's just... The same... The same guy. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I mean, I was just up to visit Garrett, too, and it is, like Mike said, he, he doesn't change from from being on the set, so to speak, to, uh, to being, you know, just in the shop one-on-one. It's pretty cool. And I really liked, um, one of the things that I like about the show is when Charles interviews people, he, he lets them talk. He doesn't interrupt, um, kind of lets them finish their sentences. What are you talking about? What? (laughs) (laughs) Um, just like that, but it's, it's really good. It's, it's, you know, it's a short interview with Garrett, but you really get a a good glimpse of, of where he's working and and what he's about. Yeah. Garrett has a good sense of humor too. Yes. He's funny. He laughs at my jokes. Well, I don't know if that (laughs) makes him funny, but (laughs) if you want to check out the latest episode, it's number 26 and uh, you can go to the highlandwoodworker.com. That's the highlandwoodworker.com. It's a really good episode. Go check it out. What am I doing in the episode? You are doing, um, what were you doing? Miters still? I'm still mitering a small box. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were planing uh, thin stock. Wasn't it the uh, sled? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That little jig for... Uh, oh, with the rails on each yeah. side? Yeah, for that is, that's planing cool. uh, boards, yeah. really thin boards to final dimension. Yeah. yeah. Matt will tune in later today, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, we filmed those things like almost a year ago, right? Uh, in March. In, uh, right. Of this year? Yeah. Oh. It's like that's like a year. It's like, like a, year. a year. It feels like a year. It sure does. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's get to some questions. The first one comes from Jordan, and uh, Jordan says, "I live on the south side of Chicago, and I have set up a small shop with what seems like thirty babies within earshot. Due to these size and noise constraints, I've decided to go hand tool only for now. I've began to build what tools I can plane. Wait, I'm sorry. I began to build with what tools I can." 
I can't. He's building tools when he can. Oh, He's making oh, his own yeah, tools. I, I began yeah. to build what tools I can. There uh, you go. Thank you. I should rehearse this. <laughs> and what are those tools? <laughs> He's built a pl- some planes and a bow saw, et cetera. Ooh, um, I, I re- really need an et cetera. But I can't find much information on how to finish a wooden, a wooden tool, if at all. I've read that no finish in paste wax is ideal. Any insights? Matt, you're the tool maker on staff here. What do you do? Uh, I have made tools, and I normally just finish them with uh, tried and true. So it's a Danish oil. That's okay. what I use, just a Danish oil. Just to soak it in and uh, give it a little bit of protection. I mean, I, I wouldn't put shellac on it. I mean, you could just do paste wax, I guess. That's fine. Uh, although, you know, if you put paste wax on any surface that's going to be rubbing on wood it's not going to stay there for very long so why, right. why put it there and also paste wax has a tendency when you put it on something like a like a shooting board surface or a, a um you know like a marking gauge fence or something it has a tendency not to just come off but also to sort of like clump up in dirty little uh little blobs mm-hmm. on the wood so I wouldn't use paste wax on those surfaces. I think I would just go with uh, uh, some kind of a, like a Danish oil that has a, you know some varnish in it, but not a lot. Tried and true. Like tried and true. Yeah. <laughs> on your little molding planes, are, are you concerned about sealing the end grain to sort of help mitigate movement at all? Or is that kind of a non-issue as well? I wasn't concerned about that. <laughs> no, I'm not. Con- I've never been concerned about that, and it's never been an issue. I, my, they're still straight and uh, and and work properly after you know seven years or whatever it's been since cool. I made them. Uh, I think it's more you select the right cut of wood for your plane bodies, and are any you know anything like a fence for a marking gauge or what have you, and. Uh, and then you make sure that it, you know you you season it properly, so to speak. What's you know? the right cut? Well, it varies depending on the tool. Mm-hmm. I, um, but for uh, say a, a marking gauge, I would probably use uh, riff sawn or quarter. I mean, rather quarter sawn, rather if I could. Um, that way, the wood movement is going to be in the thickness and not in the height of it. So I think it would be less likely to cup. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's what I would use. For a hand plane, you want to use, oh, man. For the Krenov style planes, I was told to use rifts on stock because yes. it's the most stable in each axis. Right. Yeah. When you get into molding planes and stuff, honestly, I, I shouldn't say because I, I've never made a true molding plane. And um, so I don't want to say. You want to use Corian for those. <laughs> <laughs> Or marble. <laughs> granite. <laughs> Just don't take it for granite. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Uh, the next question comes from Marcus. Hey, fellas, when building wall cabinets, how do you fix them to drywall? And you don't. You fix them to studs. Drywall compound. <laughs> well, on small cabinets, um, I yeah. tend to hang all my cabinets with a French cleat. Um, it's sort of a two-part cleat. Basically, two strips of wood. Uh, each piece has a 45-degree angle ripped along one edge. And so half of that gets screwed to the case, and then the other half gets screwed to the wall, and they sort of made up, and it holds it in place. I like mm-hmm. that because then instead of trying to get a cabinet where you want it and try to hold it square while yeah. you're somehow trying to attach it, a little cleat is really easy to 
sink in one screw, get your level on there, get yeah. it nice and level, and put the other one in. For small cabinets, I don't necessarily need to worry about hitting a stud. I use those little plastic sleeves. You drill sort of an mm-hmm. oversized hole, pound them in, and screw those in. I think those are typically rated for up to like 60 or 80 pounds, yeah. which get, is a lot. Yeah, it's yeah, plenty. Different. Yeah. You get two of those in there, you're, you're going to hold 160 pounds, you know? Yeah. You're yeah. putting lead you can hang your children. cast iron <laughs> in these little cabinets. Um, there are times when I definitely want to go get into a stud and um, sometimes it's just if I can get one in, that's good for my tool cabinet in my shop. I definitely, that's wide enough where it spans multiple studs. So those are really sunk in. But Chris Bexford had a really cool trick. His French cleat, he has sort of almost like a T-shaped cleat where he has a vertical, which he can get multiple, multiple screws into a stud. Um, and then the little top part is your French cleat. And, um, it allows him to get a, a really solid purchase with a French cleat cool. in, in contacting just a single stud. I wonder if he plans it out to where he figures out where the stud is to mount that vertical along mm-hmm. that T. So it might yeah. not be perfectly in the center of the T. It might it be more like a, a gamma. A gamma. <laughs> I don't know. A capital gamma. I don't know. Either that or it's just, nope, that's where, that's where it's the gonna cabinet's going to go. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. It's like yeah. A, tough luck, client. That's where your, <laughs> yeah. that's where your cabinet's going. <laughs> it can go here. Yeah, right over the toilet. <laughs> or here. <laughs> um, well, I do things a little bit differently. because I, I only make small cabinets. So... Um, I used to would you know when I first started I was like oh you got to make a French cleat but what's the problem with a French cleat it eats up interior space you do lose whatever the thickness yeah. of the cleat is you lose that thickness right so I mean you can I've done like quarter inch thick French right. cleats on really on small cabinets which works but if your cabinet's only five inches deep and you eat up a quarter to three eighths with a cleat and then another quarter to a half inch with the back sure. You know, you are you, you're really significantly chopping down how much interior space is in that there is in that cabinet. So, what I started to do uh, on small cabinets, and a lot of the cabinets I make are maybe ten to twelve inches wide, up to twenty four inches tall, something like you know that would be the maximum dimensions there. Right. And uh, I make a back out of plywood and cover it in shops on veneer so it's not ugly, and uh, glue it into a rabbit. So you have a really strong uh, back-to-cabinet connection there. Right. Right? So then what I do, because these are lightweight cabinets that are not going to be holding, you know, your gold to bloom collection. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, you know, you're not putting a lot of weight in them. So there's always drawers at the bottom. Right. So I go to the top row of drawers, and there will be two holes through the back behind the top row of drawers. Okay. And then I attach through those holes in the glued-in back using – in drywall, I would use uh, anchors. Now, if possible, I'd, one of those would go into a stud, you sure. know, but it's not always possible. And then you just use two, uh, two anchors. And if you're really worried about it, instead of using those plastic pop-in anchors, you could use a toggle yeah. Oh, anchor. those are coming those out. Too. Those yeah. Are, yeah, that's never coming out. They're really strong. Um and I've mounted, uh, hung numerous cabinets this way, and th- it's not a problem. Yeah. But the key is small cabinet that's not going to hold a lot of weight. And you can hang it from the bottom third then. Now, I'm sure we're going to get emails and you know letters of complaint because I do that. But, you know, 
know what I always say? Why is it because you're, you're attaching it low the, instead the of right. high? Yeah. And I could yeah. lever out. Yeah, no, it's fine. It is fine. Sure, it's fine. What I, I mean, speaking of the, the notion about losing all that depth with the French cleat and the back on a shallow cabinet, for me, the biggest issue is when I do that, if I have a drawer at the bottom, it ends up being really short. Exactly. I hate yeah. that. Yes. It's really tippy. Yeah. Yep. So a lot of times I'll stop my back at the the drawer little shelf. Oh, and ooh, it just gives me that extra half inch of drawer length there. Um, just to make it not quite so tippy when That's it comes a neat out. Idea. And then you put in a different type of back behind the drawers, or what do you do there? Nothing. Nothing. All the way to the wall. Yeah, just all the way to the wall. wall. Yeah. But then I have a little stop on the inside where a lot of times on a small piece, I'll let the back of the case be my drawer stop in this case. I don't want it to bunk against the wall. That's weird. So I'll have yeah. to do a little stop on there. I like how clever uh, that is, but nice. I'm never going to do it. Sorry. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> I might try that out. Yeah, I've done I've done both of those methods with plywood attaching it straight to the wall, and then of course I I did it at the top, so I'm not going to get the angry emails that Matt's going to get. No, I'll forward them to you. <laughs> Thanks. I'm not going to respond to them. I'll let Ben do that. But we did a great article I think uh, a few years ago about hanging cabinets, and there yes. are all sorts of different types of uh, cleat methods. Yes, um, it's really solid. So. That's where Chris Bexford's T cleat is. It is. So. It's, yep. uh, was it called yeah. how to hang hang a cabinet or We'll look at it. Yeah, I think it was something really creative like that. Yeah, and it was the the best way to hang a cabinet. No, it was how to hang a cabinet. How to came up moderately wall. clever. So <laughs> moderately clever. Yeah, Ben will find that and right. You can put a link to it on the blog page. Give us two thumbs up. I think they're thumbs. <laughs> um, it could be middle fingers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's time for uh, our first segment. It's time for our all-time favorite tool of all time for this week. Uh, do you want to go first, Mike? Sure. Um, I uh, recently made some clamp purchases, and the clamps weren't something I would in the past expect to buy, but I've kind of started to like them a lot more. And um, they're the clamps, the aluminum, I think they're the universal brand aluminum bar clamps with the little ratchety um little uh, jaw on one end and just a screw on the other. Um, Bob Van Dyke has tons and tons of those at Connecticut Valley. I teach there quite a bit. So I end up using those all the time. And his are all kind of like gunked up with glue. And I don't know. But even with that, um, I just sort of got in the habit of using them. And some of my parallel jaw clamps are starting to get a little bit tired. The jaws aren't really parallel. And pipe clamps are pipe clamps. And I don't have a good bar clamp. So I thought... I'm going to get me a bunch of these uh, aluminum bar clamps and I like them a lot. The downside is that they flex a little bit, but what I like about them is that in a lot of gluing situations like dovetails, mortise and tenon joints, case construction, you don't need a lot of can- clamping pressure. You mm-hmm. need just enough pressure to keep the joint closed because any more pressure isn't going to make the joint any stronger and it can just do bad things like rack things out mm-hmm, of square yeah. or flat. So, on a big heavy clamp, especially those like the Jorgensen style, you know, um, I-beam clamps are really heavy. And you actually have to put a lot of pressure on the clamp jaw just to hold them in place so they don't fall off. So the light aluminum guys, that's what I do like about them is you can put just enough pressure to keep the clamp, uh, the joint closed without the clamp falling off. 
Yeah, and that's funny. I was going. I'm sorry, Matt. I was going to say, you know, point that out. How much pressure do we really need? You know, and uh, fifty-seven point <laughs> three pounds per, per square meter. Yes, seven hundred and fifty <laughs> foot but, pounds. Um, my rule of thumb is yeah. is a lot of times if it's a joint like a dovetail or a really tight mortise and tenon, I'll put enough clamping pressure to close the joint, and then I'll back off on the pressure. Yeah. Um, as much as I can with keeping the joint Well, close. the point that I was trying to make was that, you know, a lot of the clamping tests we've done, we've always tested flexing and things like that. And yeah. it's like, well, you know, in reality, I've got some pretty fairly inexpensive aluminum bar clamps that I use all the time. And they're working fine. So, you know, they do, I can, sometimes I can see them flexing if I really, you know, cinch down on it, but I'm rarely going that hard. Sure. Know? And for panel glue-ups where you have long grain joints, I mean, that is where clamping pressure right. is really important. But even then, yeah, the clamps flex a little bit, but if your glue joint is square and joint and square and you oppose your clamps, yeah, they may want to flex, but if you balance that, and even if you're gluing it up with a slight bow, once you take the clamps off, it's going to straighten out to how square your glue joint is right. anyway. So this whole notion that you need them dead flat in order to end up with a flat panel, yeah, I don't really buy that either. Mm -hmm. So anyway, new mm. clamps, I like them. But Matt's holding his tongue. I don't know why. Well, I mean, I didn't want to interrupt <laughs> you two. I mean, you were just so. Please go on. <laughs> I was just like, don't these aluminum clamps? They have a fairly short jaw height. Yeah. So where I think that would be beneficial because when you're doing like a dovetail and you use say a parallel jaw clamp yeah. and you do not use a call, you get clamping pressure not just on the joint but also into the cabinet sides. And that I have found can rack or put undue unnecessary pressure on the cabinet. Yeah. And so you I would I always put calls when I'm clamping up dovetails so that the pressure only goes right onto the joint. Yes. And with those tiny little jaws of the aluminum bar clamps, you only get the pressure right on the joint, right? Yeah, that, right. that's the drawback for that style of clamp. I sort of equate those basically to a lighter weight pipe clamp, little yeah. square jaw. And the, the problem is how do you transfer the glue pressure um, deeper into like a case glue up with those? So you end up using curved calls or something mm -hmm. like that or pull out a parallel jaw clamp or F-style clamps to get right. uh, the pressure where you need it. So I really like them when I'm doing my airplane models. I have just the right amount of clamping pressure. Just enough of that balsa wood to <laughs> yeah. flex but not break. All right. It's really important. It is. Nice. All right, Matt, go ahead. What are we doing? Tool. Oh, tools. Oh, right. I don't know. Uh, my favorite tool this week is something that I've owned for a while but haven't used for a while, but I pulled it out because it was the perfect tool to use, for, uh, a Festool Domino. It's my nice. favorite tool of all time this week. And uh, just, the, I'm actually just going to stir the pot. The big one or small one? The small one. It's not too expensive, so shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you talking to? <laughs> to whoever out there who said it's too expensive when I said Festool Domino, <clears throat> just shut up. It's not too expensive. It's a great tool. And um, it does exactly, it's awesome, actually. It's an awesome tool. And I used it. I mean, I would love to say, oh, I used it to make this awesome piece of furniture. But what I did use it was to make a jig. And uh, the jig I made was a basically a 45-degree ramp mm -hmm. that I can put uh, 
I'm making uh, a tea box for this client in England, and I'm nervous about the joinery, miter joint. So they drink a lot of tea. They drink a lot of tea, and I have no idea what, whether it's humid over there or what. I know it's stuffy, but I don't know if it, you know. Uh, oh so <laughs> I was going to do a spline in the miter joint, but I don't want the spline showing, so it's going to be a stopped spline, right? So that means you need stopped dados, I guess, in the miter joint. So the way I'm going to do that is this, I've got, you know, this, sl- this ramp, which will allow me to drop the joint down onto a router bit, push it along the router bit, then pull it back up. Okay. So, uh, and I needed some kind of su- support for the ramp to hold it at 45 degrees, which I made, you know, a triangular, mm-hmm. uh, two triangular supports out of poplar, three pieces each. You know, they have 45-degree angles on them. Not easy to screw together. Right. So I was like, hey, the perfect thing would be a floating tenon. And it was perfect. And the the domino went right even on the 45 miter and just zip, zip. Bonk, bonk, and then, you know, on the mating piece, zip, zip. Bonk, bonk, and bonk. that thing went together. And it was, you know, I didn't really even need to clamp it. Just banged it together and let the glue dry. And it was perfect. Yeah. So it's an I, I love that tool. It is fantastic. Yeah, it's my next big tool purchase. I think I've convinced myself. Right. Now you just have to convince your wife. Done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um well my my I have kind of a two part all time favorite tool of all time. One is I have a one of those DeWalt uh, one and a quarter horsepower compact routers. You know, it's both comes with both a plunge yes. base and a fixed base. Yeah, I, have that. I, I pretty much keep it in the plunge most of the time, and I love this thing. It's it's pretty much my go to handheld router, um, and I've used it for inlay mostly before. But I've been trying to I've wanted to use it for more joinery, and so I'm building this case, and I'm I've got some shelves in it. And I wanted to route some some uh, dados into the side, so I thought, all right, here we go. Um, went out and I bought a fence for it. Finally, that was like the big purchase of thirty dollar fence, and cool. um, the fence was awesome. It took me a little bit of, of time to figure out how it worked, and in terms of like which slot it goes into or whatever, but um, it really made the tool that much more useful. Like I said, I was using it mostly for excavating stuff, but right. once I got into the joinery aspect and had the fence there, it was awesome. And the light, you know, the, the, the router itself has a bright LED. You can see where your lines are. And I had, I was making stopped cuts. And so all I had to do was, you know, mark it on the, on the cabinet side and just do it by eye. I didn't need any kind of mechanical stop. It was really, really neat. Um, so get a, get a router fence. How are you using – so it's like an edge guide, right? Yeah. How are you using that to do dados? Across. Yeah, I know. Registered on the From end the of the top. piece? Yeah, on the end. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. How long are the rails, like the, the, the post on it? Four like, feet. Four feet long. He's coming in like <laughs> three feet from one edge. No, the, well, the, I mean there there are limits to the to the fence length, but okay. where my my grooves were were dados, it was close enough to the edge that okay. I was, I was just curious it. to yeah understand what you were doing. Yeah, but you can you know you can buy extenders, I guess, for it. I discovered which I didn't. Yeah. I didn't buy it when I first got the fence because you can eight, they have eight foot extenders <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's it's i still love the tool and, I, and now i've made it even better with uh, a little 30 dollar dewalt I, ha- fence. I have that same router set uh you know with the two bases and i do not have the edge guide 
But I, what I did buy, which made the router just freaking awesome, is the dust collection shrouds for the two bases. Uh, oh, really? They are they are fantastic. Huh. They work so well. Like when I I use that router a lot to route out waste between dovetail pins, mm-hmm. and uh, I slap it on. Uh, you know, it has the little shroud on there, and I slap my small shop vacuum onto it, and I mean all the all the stuff gets collected. Oh, cool. And that's nice because not only is um, you're not making a mess, but you can actually see where you're routing. Yeah. Especially like the um, half-blind dovetails, the sockets get yeah. like, jammed up with the, the, the chips and everything. Right. Yeah. That's funny. The, fen- the, the edge guide has a, a dust collector port, but it didn't work as well. So I should get those adapters that you're, t- you're talking about. Is that because it's attached to the fence and yeah. not to the router? Yeah. So it's <laughs> kind of like <laughs> you know, trying to get, it clo- get the dust closer to the bit or to the, to the port. But um, cool stuff. Anyway, let's get back to the questions. <clears throat> and uh, this one is, I, I didn't write the guy's name down. I apologize. But uh, it says, I'm building a couple of bedside tables with four drawers each. I'm making the interior stretchers out of poplar, a secondary wood, and will probably make the drawer sides out of the same. Do you recommend finishing the runners and drawer side bottoms to aid in smooth operation? If so, with what? And we talked about this. Mike had some... I do. Things. I like um, just a wash coat of shellac. And so I'll sand it really smooth, wash coat of shellac, and then sand it with fine sandpaper again. And it feels really, really smooth. Um, I used to just wax those parts. The problem is on bare wood, the wax really soaks in and it was like a pain in the butt and it stayed smelly for a really long time. And I find just with the wash coat of shellac first, it just mitigates the amount of absorption with the wax, and it goes on in a much, much thinner coat, dries quicker, I can buff it off. And you know, you don't want to build up a really heavy, gunky film finish, but I think shellac is is a, a perfect finish for that kind of thing. Yeah, cool. I agree. Or nothing at all. Or nothing well, I've at used all. I've I've pretty much used wax, uh, but I think I may take up the shellac. It's a good point. We're going to move on? That was a really quick Wow. One. Yeah, that was quick and easy. Michael, you can also scent your shellac for the interior parts with like lilac or something. Terry Masachi said that. I think she could use like lavender oil or something yeah. with the shellac. Yeah. I've never tried that. Have you done that? No. Oh. Uh, G- uh, Peter Gedry's also recommended that. Yeah, I have a funny wow. story about that, but I'm not going to tell. I would prefer like maybe more of a citrus scent or something a citrus? like that. Yes, yeah. like a lemony or pine. See pine. Yeah, people yeah. like that. People love even just like wax. Like when you wax something in like little box, and people they always smell it. And go, oh, you know what? The that best, smells great. It's the, like, well, that's, that's wax. wax. The best like, smell in the world <laughs> is it's cooking bread. Oh yeah, sure. Okay, I would like to scent my shellac with cooking bread smell oh wasn't one of the vegas casinos uh scented like cooking bread i i don't know but you know what they do they, they built an old folks home i don't know what they call them now in vegas uh no <laughs> by my parent oh. by the house i grew up in and when they built it they you know there was a big article about it in the newspaper because they were introducing all these new technologies to help invigorate the old folks And one of the things they did was they, into the uh, air conditioning duct system, they had some kind of smell injector. And they would inject like the smell of baking bread Hmm. because it would uh, make them make 
people hungry and then they, they would eat their dinners. <laughs> wow. Well, I guess the scents in Vegas make you want to gamble. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they do. So, uh, I smell money. Yeah. That really sounds a lot more nefarious. Sounds yeah, once you say it out loud, <laughs> right. yeah, it's not, not great. Here's one tip in, in terms of nice smells. Uh, in regard to woodworking, if you're inviting someone over to your shop, especially if it's a prospective client or something like that, can I come over and see your wood shop? Sure, just get some a pine board and run it across your joiner a couple times before they come in, and it smells like, oh, I love the smell of your shop. Oh, I, I love the smell of a wood shop. It's like, yeah, it's a pine board, a couple passes, and good to go. Well, I've got a cat box in my shop, so I'd have to like well, build a yeah. whole pine <laughs> chest of drawers. <laughs> <laughs> it's awful. Anyway, let's get back to you. It's uh, also solid dating advice, Mike. I don't think Mike needs that. The next question is from Ron. <laughs> I currently use a router table on an enclosed cabinet with locking casters. And although it works fine and I use it occasionally as additional outfeed, I think it can free some valuable space by putting it into the table saw extension table. Are there any big advantages or disadvantages that I'm, cons- that I'm not considering? Um, I don't know. We, we we did a project on that a few yeah. years ago in our shop and had some good tips on installing it. I I have my own, a separate router table, so I really can't yeah, speak to it. The last time we did that in the magazine, John White made a side feed table router table for the shop cabinet saw, and he did a really nice job. He had dust collection above the table and below the table. So dust collection wasn't an issue. And the fence attached to your table saw fence Mm -hmm. with clamps. And the only disadvantage there, which I don't really know how often this would come up, I would hazard almost never, is that if you're in the middle of a table saw setup. Oh, wait, I need to route something. And I need to route something. (laughs) You know, you don't want to move your table saw fence. I, I just, you know. I could see maybe that could come up. Yeah. Conceivably that could, but I doubt it would. I don't think there's any disadvantage, but I do, I would question how valuable is the space of your shop because if, unless it's like $300 a square foot, you know, I don't see why. Yeah. You're you're creating a whole new project for yourself and you have a router table that seems to be working just fine. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to put instead of the router table? I mean, how are you going to use that space? You know, that's the question. Yeah. I'm thinking about that. I've always wanted to do that, but my side feed table is kind of short, so I don't have the the legs out there, and I'm afraid that the weight of a router, big heavy router and router lift without the support legs, would is like make it too tippy. It would chill. It would pull yeah. your table saw over. So your table um, saw is really light. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a Delta Unisaw. How much yeah, does that thing but weigh? You can't leave that thing out, and you throw a big old board on there. Yeah. Yeah, it'd probably just it's gonna go. fall right <laughs> over like go. a weeble wobble. Um, no, yeah, they, they come back, though. <laughs> I, mean, I have a little cabinet-style router table. It's a, it's a benchtop uh, router table, but it it's, makes it quieter, which I guess is kind of cool. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, I, there's not a lot of – I don't think there's a big disadvantage. I think right. the advantage no. is it does save space, and my shop is really small, so I'll, you know, probably one of these days when I get around to it, I'll – do that yeah my my take is that if i'm thinking if his router table is working fine he doesn't need the extra space why go through the hassle but to each his own i mean i would just say before you do that think about what are you going to do with that space in place of a router table and think about how you work like because matt brought up a good point that you know there may be times when you're 
trying to make a cut and you need the router table or vice versa. And Well, what I could see happening is not that you need to leave a table saw set up in place, but you need to leave a router right. table the set up in place or something, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And then you're like, Oh, but wait a minute, I forgot to cut this or, Oh, I just misrouted that. Now I got to, you know, it's, yeah. I could see needing to leave the router table set up, but not the table saw. Yeah. I think the one advantage that maybe isn't that great of an advantage is like, oh, I can just use my table saw rip fence as my router fence. It's like, mm, you can't. I would probably still have like a single yeah. point router fence and a yeah. little wing nut to stick it on there if I really wanted to. Yeah. yeah Trying, yeah, a parallel. Yeah. I think you're right. It's, it's nice to be able to not worry about. To, to be able to pivot the router fence right, because right. you can make ni- easier Zero micro clearance. adjustments and things like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Plus, yeah. You know, sometimes you need to bury the bit. You do, yeah. So, um, sometimes. Just sometimes. Bury that bit. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm feeling a little hostile this morning. I don't know. <laughs> Good <laughs> <laughs> I'm right. usually hostile. Let's get to our, our next segment. Um, it's time for our all-time favorite technique of all time for this week, and and maybe we can uh, lift Matt's spirits by letting him go first and yammering. What do we do? Technique? Yeah, all-time favorite technique of all oh, time. Oh, it says for it this right. Week. It says it right it's there. <laughs> <laughs> so mine is uh, so something I do. I work with a lot of thin boards, right? Whether it's shops on veneers or little thin parts for drawers or tea, ca- you know, tea cabinets or what have boxes, and um, <clears throat> you always, you know, I like to hand plane my surfaces. So, uh, but hand planing a uh, a thin board that's you know like a half inch or thinner mm-hmm. is tricky. You know, because you're if you're using uh, say a number four, the number four is over two inches wide, and it's kind of heavy, so it can teeter totter a little bit on that narrow edge. So, what I especially with shops on veneer, it's impossible, right? You can't edge, you can't do that. So, um, <clears throat> I've always sort of done makeshift shooting boards for long grain, and you know that has to be long, and. Uh, which is kind of a problem, which is why I never wanted to have one permanently because like, what do you do with it? You right. know, but I finally broke down and made one and, uh, I have to admit, I'm very happy that I did, uh, just to always have it there. And what was, what's kind of nice about it is that they're much easier to make than a ingrain shooting board because an ingrain shooting board, you really do want the fence perfectly square mm-hmm. and to, zero clearance and zero clearance right. and all that business. Yeah. And really, none of that matters with long grain, right. because for me, the the long grain it's already been jointed, so it's straight. Yep. Right, and I don't have to worry about that. And um, also, at this when I'm doing this, the ends have never it's never been cut to length, so I don't have to worry about it being square to the end grain. So. Uh, I did, it really wasn't that, you know, I was, I, you know, I tried to get it square, but I wasn't super particular about it and I just screwed it down and it doesn't have to be zero clearance because there's no tear out mm-hmm. with right. long grain. So, uh, I made it, it clamps into my vice and it's about, I think it's like three or maybe 40 inches long so I can handle, you know, fairly long, uh, stock that way. Right. So I just glued up some panels that I was making for these tea cabinets. Uh, and uh, it worked great for that. And so the, I guess the technique is not the jig, but the technique is using a shooting board to plane long grain. 
Well, it's putting yeah. your plane on the side, yeah. on, the on the side. bench, yeah. and planing it that way to keep so it you square. Don't, you don't take yeah. it out. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Square. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, that's one of the big challenges. Oh, yeah, that's exactly. I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing this morning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's how to keep that edge green, yeah. edge square to the face is use a shooting board. Yeah. yeah. It, it is one of the challenges when you're learning to use a hand plane is make, not, not taking that edge out of square as you're, you're working the edge. It's easy to tip it. So yeah. Here's a little like tip on that. So when you're doing like a three-quarter inch wide board or something, you know, just a normal board, and you notice that it starts to get the edges no longer square to the face, we always check. The first thing you should check is to see whether or not the blade is skewed in the mouth. Because if it is, it's going to take a heavier cut from one side yep. than the other. Right. And that's no matter what you do, you're going to end up planing the edge out of square. You're just going to make it narrower, but you're not changing that <laughs> angle. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So you got to, that's the first thing. That's the first thing I always check. Cool. All right. Mike? Um, you may have noticed on my furniture, um, some of the joints kind of stick out just a little bit. Um, so I like to do a lot of through tenons. And, but, I'm fairly discerning about the amount that the tenons stick out. And so when I'm cutting joinery, I tend to err a little bit on the heavy side because you think, oh, a sixteenth of an inch, that'll look good. But then you get the case together and it's like, no, that's way too horsey. They're sticking out way too much. I want to trim that down a little bit. But now you have this tenon cut on four shoulders. There's no way to trim that easily on a machine, table saw, or bandsaw without getting tear out on the corners because it's completely unsupported. So the technique I came up with, and I was just using it this week, um, is I get a shim. Um, the thickness of the shim is equal to the amount that I want the tenon to actually, the finished tenon to stick out. So let's say it's like a fat 30-second, I have a fat 30-second shim, maybe a business card or something like that. So I'll dry fit the joint together. I'll loosen it up just enough to slip the shim uh, between the workpiece and the shoulder, and then I push the joint closed, so I have a gap at the shoulder, and now I can get out my block plane or hand plane and plane the protruding tenon flush to the outside mm -hmm. surface. And because it's like sticking through the mortise, it's, it creates sort of like a zero clearance shooting board. Nice. Yeah, plane nice. it flush, pull out the shim, pop. There's my perfectly protruding tenon. Yeah. Works really well, especially for multiple tenons. You have a case side with three square tenons, one couple shims in there, and you plane them all at once, and they're all sticking out exactly the same amount. No tear out. How do you, you often chamfer the edges. How do you handle the chamfer when you've got it protruding the right amount? Um, pull it out and chamfer it. Oh. <laughs> there you go. I like it, Mike. It's very clever. I'll never do it, but it's very clever. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> Here's something else that, that Matt wouldn't do. Um, I'm just kidding. I, I, every time Mike s describes some technique, I go home and do it for the, that that evening. That's what I do for my entertainment. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe how many tapes, rolls of blue tape I've gone through. <laughs> That's just in the kitchen. <laughs> I don't know what, that, what does that mean? <laughs> we'll talk later. Uh, um my my all time favorite technique is related to my blunder um, from a, the uh, last episode where um, I built this cabinet and I used biscuits. Now biscuits they're really easy to use and they're they're pretty sound for the type of cabinet that I'm building. The problem is when you glue up all you know the case has you know two sides and a, and a center partition. When you try to glue them all up at once, the the downside with biscuits is that they 
part of the genius is that you can shift boards, but it's also part of the peril is that you're trying to get multiple things aligned as you're trying sure. to clamp up. Right. So, <clears throat> you know, when I fixed my blunder and I got, you know, I, I, I put the partition in incorrectly for those who didn't uh, hear my smooth move. Um, so I replaned everything and reassembled it. But this time what I did, and I think Mike uh, gave me the suggestion. I think he, he got it from, uh, um, Tim Russo? Uh, t- <laughs> no. Is it the dial at the end? No, it was uh, uh, Tony O'Malley had mentioned that oh, yeah. he, he clamps up one one section at a time. And so what I did is I, I did one, I put in a side, clamped it, got it square, oh, cool. let it dry, and then did the other side, did the same thing, made sure it was square. And then I did the partition at the same time I put the top on. And then um, it was so... I had like no sweat, no stress or anything and everything was perfectly square and all the the only parts that I had to shift around was really the top because the partition went into place and you know that was you know it was set back so I didn't need to have it aligned with anything except the back groove for the rabbit and it was totally a stress-free glue up probably the most stress-free glue up I've ever had cool and it was it was totally awesome cool so very cool yeah the the trick from Mark Edmondson um who does great, great uh, case work, a lot of sheet goods, veneered sheet goods, he'll use biscuits to join an edge, but to maintain that alignment, he'll uh, drill a, a hole for a dowel on one edge That's of the really joint, good. sort of uh, partially assemble it, get the parts lined up, and he'll use a dowel center, which is a little cup mm-hmm. with a pointy thing on one end, um, to locate the dowel hole on the other side. It's sort of like when you're using a domino, you can set the width of the domino. So either in the center on one edge, I'll set that for a really tight fit and then just open up the gaps yeah. down mm-hmm. that line. Do you that's, do that as that's well? Really with smart. Uh, yeah, I have done that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have a domino? Yeah. I also have a website, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's get to some more questions. Uh, this one comes from Matt. I've seen the recommendations to pre-finish pieces numerous times, but I don't feel like it's ever been adequately explained. Frankly, I'm intimidated. Won't I get glue on the finished pieces? How many coats should I do before finishing? And all of them? Should I do a final coat after the piece is assembled? Any advice would be appreciated. Well, Matt, I'm glad you asked that question because <laughs> there's a lot to this. Yeah. Um, well, I just don't. What does the prefix pre mean? Um, <laughs> it's the opposite of post. Yeah, I mean, well, it's basically. not helping. <laughs> so, um, okay, first off, don't be intimidated. It's no big deal. Secondly, will I get glue on the finished pieces? Yeah, the good thing is if it's pre-finished, it's going to pop off. So, you know, the notion of, well, won't I get, usually the question is, won't I get finish on the joinery? It's like, only if you put finish on the joinery. <laughs> so, <Thanks, Mike. laughs> yeah, so keep the finish off the glue joints. Normally, I mean, you're talking about a really thin coat. You're not brushing varnish on. A lot of times, like for me, my most common wash coat is just uh, wiping on a really thin coat of thin shellac, in which case there are no drips or runs. You can be pretty mm-hmm. careful about it. I don't bother taping off anything. Um, so that's no big deal. And how many coats before finishing? It depends. And it also depends what the piece is. Um, if it's a piece that is going to be flushed up after glue up, say like you know outsides of drawers or a case with flush dovetails, you don't pre-finish anything on the outside. Right. Um, but it is a really good idea to, to pre-finish the inside because the easiest way to 
sort of get finish into an inside corner is do it before it's an inside mm-hmm. corner. And then also if you get glue, squeeze out on the inside, it's easy to chip off. So um, on again, my stuff where the joints kind of stick out, I'm not doing any flushing after the fact, so I will pre-finish inside and out. At the bare minimum, it's a wash coat of shellac and then sand it. And it feels sort of like there isn't any finish on it at mm-hmm. all. But the really good thing is that wash coat, it sort of raises the grain, locks it in place. So once you sand it, you're not going to raise the grain again with the next coat of finish. So even if you only do that and you need to finish the inside of the case, you're not having to do a lot of sanding and heavy lifting afterwards. So, um, And then on something, I will take it all the way to the final finish. I just did a piece where I actually uh, built up a finish with shellac. I still wooled and waxed it. So it was like done, done Mm -hmm. before the parts came together. And then for like a door where you are flushing up the rails and styles and trimming it to fit, you maybe pre-finish just the door panel mm-hmm. or the inside edges. So, um, And then in terms of the type of finish, it can be anything from an oil to a coat of wiping varnish, which you're going to use, or shellac, which I tend to use. Well, here's a, here's a question from Matt. Yes. <laughs> Did all that make sense, Matt? Uh, yeah. You, I mean, you make... Uh, Are you guys talking about something? <laughs> you make these delicate boxes. Do you pre-finish? I mean, because one of the things you think that you'd want to pre-finish areas that are just hard to reach once it's assembled. I pre-finish the interior. Uh, what I'll do is often I'll even put the wax on for the interior. Um, Before you cut the miters? Or after? Yeah, after I cut the miters, then, then I'll then I'll do the finish. Um, and say before I glue the bottom in, I'll uh finish the the top of the bottom so that once it's in there it's in there right i mean that you know that varies because i actually more often than not the uh inside the top of the bottom of a a box for me is either got fabric glued to it or it's been milk painted so um uh but the exteriors i do not pre-finish because they require uh hand planing afterwards um but then, like things like uh, when I'm milk painting, I milk paint on the edges of a lot of things. So, like the edge of all four edges of a top might get milk painted, but not the other the two faces of the top. And so, there, what I would do is I'd fit the top a little loose, just a tiny little bit loose, and then paint those edges. I well, I would mask off the top and bottom surfaces of the top, then paint the edges, uh, pull the masking tape off use a scraper to knock down the little lip of paint that you know comes up right. to match the, the tape. Right. Knock that down. And then normally I would take a hand plane to that top and bottom surface, and that gets it really clean and really tight, nice, crisp uh, corners where the paint edge, the painted edge in the, in the, surf, in the top and bottom surfaces meet. So um, that's how I would do that. Um, is there anything else? In boxes that I have to think about. I don't finish Kumiko at all. I know you do. I don't. You don't? Yeah, I don't don't. either. If I did, I would probably use spray shellac. That's what I would use. But I don't finish it at all. Um, Hmm. Hmm. I think that's it. Okay. I guess that's all I have to say about that. Well, perfect. Because that's all the time we have. (laughs) What? We're done, really? (laughs) I think we're done. Um, And that's it for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Tune in again in two weeks on October 14th for our next episode. Remember to send your questions and comments to shoptalk at taunton.com. And please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. 
You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on the web at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Also, don't forget to visit finewoodworking.com to keep up with the tool giveaway for our 40th anniversary. The current prize is a combo package that consists of an assorted pack of Type-On glues, plus the Craig K5 Master System Jig and System Organizer. To win, you must enter by October 3rd. To enter, go to finewoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps. That's the number 40. Again, that's finewoodworking.com slash 40 sweeps. Finally, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook and look for all of us on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening and have fun in the shop. You know what we didn't do? <laughs> we didn't do our uh, the stat. Our stat. Thirty-six percent of all woodworkers wear both suspenders and a belt. Oh. And twenty-seven percent <laughs> of woodworkers have Google baby carrot lathe. <laughs> Is that how they make baby carrots? Yes. They turn them down yeah. from big carrots. Yes, that's awesome. I know.